Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, 18 years ago, um, Discovery Channel uh, launched a TV show that was immensely popular. In fact, it was so popular that it was briefly taken off the air in 2016, and then it was put back on the air for another two years because audiences wanted it back. Uh, for the longest time, it was considered to be the best science show on TV. And the show that I'm talking about is, of course, Mythbusters. And so I'm curious, how many of you in this room have ever seen an episode of Mythbusters before? Okay, yes, most of you have. Well, if you haven't seen Mythbusters and you're wondering what the show is about, basically the purpose of the show is to uncover the truth behind popular myths and legends that are out there. And the way they do this is by using the scientific method. And so in each episode, uh, the bit, at the very beginning of the episode, the host will tell the viewers what the myth is, uh, the myth in question that they're dealing with. And then in the controlled environment, they'll perform a set of experiments to bust the myth, to see if the myth is true or not. And part of what makes Mythbusters so engaging and entertaining is that things get messy, don't they? They get pretty chaotic on the set. In fact, as I was doing some work on this message, I did some research online, and I came across uh, the most up-to-date stats about Mythbusters. And so these are the most up-to-date stats that I was able to find on the internet. Since Mythbusters debuted back in 2003, the team has tested 1,000 15 myths, performed 2,950 experiments, filmed over 9,300 hours, created 900 explosions, destroyed 295 vehicles, and used 56,500 yards of duct tape. <laughs> and a partridge and a pear tree, right? Some really impressive stuff. Now, of course, I could talk more and more about Mythbusters, but I thought I would do us one better. Uh, what I want to do next is I want to share a clip with you from an episode of, that aired back in 2015, and so six years ago. And in this particular episode, the hosts attempt to address a very profound question. And that question is this. It's up here on the screen. In the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, as Amanda and I were driving home last night, we noticed that on Independence Lane, um, Maitland was actually um, showing uh, the city of Maitland was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so people in our community were watching that together. Well, in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is part of the Indiana Jones franchise, could Indiana Jones have really made it out of a South American temple, unharmed as he did, with all these poison darts flying at him? Didn't this question keep you up last night as you were sleeping? Right? This is why you came to worship today, to receive the answer to this question? Well, you're in luck, because you're about to receive the answer. Take a look. Why are you dressed like my old archaeology professor? No, no, no. I'm dressed as Indiana Jones. What's the story? <laughs> okay, the story is there's also a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark starring a guy named Indiana Jones, and we're going to tackle some myths from that movie. In the exhilarating opening scene from the iconic 80s adventure story, there's a question to be answered. By simply running for it, would Indy really have escaped unharmed? 
And as a massive fan of the franchise, Adam's in his element. I've carefully checked screenshots of Harrison Ford against many parts of the set, knowing how tall he is. Indy will encounter at least 16 of those pads, likely setting off 16 darts. That's how many he's got to outrun. That's how many we're going to set up. In the temple run, Indy gets shot at by Mayan poison darts. But because these are potentially lethal, I'm going to do the same thing using paintballs. And so it's my job to figure out how to put together a 16-gun pressure pad-operated paintball gun array. It's just going to be like a little assembly line of, you know, barrel, 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 and uh, out comes the paintball and shoots us. The next step is to combine them into a single coordinated air-powered system. As we run along, we'll be setting off these guns one after the other. Fantastic. So Indy really could have made it out. Easily. So how do you want to call it? Confirmed, I guess. I'm there with you, but it is a fictional universe, so I'm inclined to give them plausible. Suits me. Okay. All right. So there we have it. It is plausible that Indiana Jones could have made it out alive, um, although we don't know that for certain, right? Because it is a fictional movie, as the hosts say. Um, so that's how the TV show Mythbusters works. The hosts take these myths, and then they do their very best to uh, bust the myths in order to get to the truth. Because, folks, the reality is, and we have this up on the screen, myths hold a lot of power over the human imagination, don't they? Uh, myths shape our worldviews. And even in those moments when they're untrue, they still have the capacity to influence us and govern our actions and direct our behavior. Uh, myths are prevalent when it comes to how we think about the world, but myths are not only prevalent when it comes to how we think about the world, myths are also prevalent when it comes to how we think about the church, um, this body of believers, this institution, this organization that God has put together. And what I mean by that is that there are a lot of us, maybe even some of us here today or some of us worshiping online right now, um, there are a lot of us who hold certain ideas about the church to be true, even though they're not true, and in many cases, flat out contradict the teachings of Scripture. And so, given the prevalence of these ideas and in the spirit of Mythbusters, um, today at Asbury, we are diving into a brand new series of messages uh, that we're simply calling Mythbusters, Lies We Tell Ourselves About the Church. Mythbusters, Lies We Tell Ourselves About the Church. And so, we're going to take our cue from the TV show Mythbusters, and we're going to do some exploring about the church in this uh, sermon series. Now, before we go any further, I should say that there is at least one big difference between the TV show Mythbusters and what we're going to be doing in the sermon series. Um, in the TV show Mythbusters, we don't know if the myth is true or not until the very end of the episode, once the hosts perform all those various experiments. However, in the sermon series, we know up front, we know going into it, that these myths about the church that we're talking about are in fact lies. Um, hence the subtitle of the series, Lies We Tell Ourselves About the Church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to use Scripture, the Bible, to demonstrate why they're lies. In particular, we are going to bust three of the most common, three of the most prevalent, three of the most destructive lies about the church that are out there right now. A lot of us hold these lies to be true without even thinking about it. Uh, and those lies are these. We saw them in the bumper video just a moment ago. Number one, I don't need the church. Number two, 
The church is about me. And then number three, it's enough just to go to church. I don't need the church. The church is about me, and it's enough just to go to church. How many of us here today have bought into one or more of these lies before? I certainly have, if I'm being honest. So over the next few weeks, folks, we're going to do our very best um, to tear down these lies. In fact, by the time we're done with the sermon series three weeks from now, my hope is that by God's grace, we'll have a much healthier image of the church, a healthier understanding of the church. And that healthier image, that healthier understanding will encourage us to get more involved with the church, more connected to the church, because it's my conviction. This is something that I believe in the core of who I am, that the church is God's best hope for the world. The church is God's best hope for the world. Listen, I know the church is imperfect. I know the church makes mistakes. I know the church occasionally gets it wrong. It has gotten it wrong um, historically. It still gets it wrong occasionally today. But there is nothing else like the church when the church is working right. God wants to use the church to literally change this world, to transform lives, to alter people's stories. And so the first lie that we're going to tear down is this. I don't need the church. Because like a cancer, this lie has spread among Christianity, especially Christianity in the West where we tend to hold up individualism as an idol. I remember one time when I was in college, um, I was living in a dorm room, and I was forced to get out of bed one night because there was a student in the building who decided to pull the fire alarm as a prank. You ever been there before? Uh, this guy had had a really good time um, earlier that evening and just thought that he would be funny by pulling the alarm. It wasn't funny, by the way. Also, it wasn't the best use of the fire department's time or resources. And so it was early Sunday morning. Uh, must have been about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. And all the students had to go outside, and we were waiting um, for the fire department to come and to give us the clear to go back in the building. So, of course, there were all these conversations that were going on. And I couldn't help but overhear this one particular conversation between two people. And so there was this one person. She said to the other person, I'm so sorry you had to get out of bed for this. This is so ridiculous, it's inconvenient. I cannot believe this person was so selfish and foolish. And Plus, knowing you, you probably have church in a few hours, don't you? Uh, this person knew that the individual she was speaking to was Christian, so she made the assumption that she was going to be in worship the next morning. And she said, no, I don't go to church all that much. Not as much as you might think. I mean, I'll go occasionally, every once in a while when I feel like it. But most of my time on Sunday morning, here's what I do. I wake up, I pour a nice cup of coffee, I eat some breakfast, I go for a walk, I listen to some worship music, then I'm good. That's my church for the week. And that's the approach a lot of people take, if we're being honest, maybe even some of us. That's the approach a lot of people take when it comes to church. They'll say, well, the church could be useful, it could be helpful, but it's optional. It's not a necessary part of following Jesus. It's possible to be a Christian without the church. There are two big problems with this kind of thinking that I want to highlight in this message. The first big problem is this. Number one, it hurts us because it goes against our nature as human beings and robs us of the relationships that God wants to use to fill us and change us. It hurts us because it goes against our nature as human beings and robs us of the relationships that God wants to use 
to fill us and change us. Uh, anybody here remember learning what a deductive argument is when you were in school? Anybody remember learning about deductive arguments maybe when you were in um, a philosophy class or a logic class? So a deductive argument in a nutshell is where you make a set of statements, and because the statements are true, the conclusion of the argument has to be true. Uh, this is a textbook example of a deductive argument. Socrates, remember Socrates, the great philosopher? Socrates is a human being. All human beings are mortal. Therefore, Socrates is what? Mortal. Or this is another example of a deductive argument. All birds have feathers. Pigeons are birds. Therefore, pigeons have what? Feathers. And so if the first two statements are true, then the conclusion has to be true. And so, folks, this is the deductive argument that I want us to think about today. God is relational. Human beings have been made in God's image or God's likeness. Therefore, human beings are what? Relational. God is relational. Human beings have been made in God's image or God's likeness. Therefore, human beings are relational. Let's start with this first line. God is relational. One of the core convictions of Christianity is that there is only one God. How many gods are there? Just one God. There is no other God but God. However, we also hold that God exists from all eternity as a community of persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We as Christians call this teaching, this doctrine, the Trinity. And I know the Trinity confuses a lot of us, but listen, the Trinity is not a math problem that's meant to be solved. The Trinity is a divine mystery that we hold to. Um, St. Augustine once said that if you um, don't believe in the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. But then he also said, if you try to understand the Trinity, you're going to lose your mind. Uh, the Trinity is who God is in and of himself. God has always been Trinity. God will always be Trinity. There is never going to be a moment in which God's not going to be Trinity. Um, God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. And so within God's own being, there are relationships. There is a community within the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our God is a relational God. And that brings us then to our next line. Human beings have been made in God's image or God's likeness. Um, check out with me what the writer of Genesis says here. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, this is the very first statement about humanity that we find in the Bible. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so folks, you and I have been made in the image of God which means we have been made to reflect God, we have been made to resemble God, we have been made to be like God. Again, God is relational, human beings have been made in God's image or God's likeness, therefore human beings are relational, that at our core, we are relational creatures. It doesn't matter if you're introverted like myself, if you're extroverted, we are all relational creatures. We have been made for relationship with God, but it's equally true that we have been made for relationship with other people. Um, in the creation story in Genesis, and some of us here today may recall that I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, part of what I love about the creation story is that there's a lot of repetition that takes place. There are certain lines that get repeated over and over again. For example, in God said, let there be. In God said, let there be. In God said, let there be. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Again, there's all this repetition in the creation story. Well, there's this other line in the creation story that gets repeated. As soon as God makes something, calls something into being, 
Do you remember what it is? Exactly. And God saw that it was? And God saw that it was? So God makes the sun, and the sun is? God makes the moon, and the moon is? God makes the stars, and the stars are? God makes animals, and animals are? And then we come to Genesis 2.18. And this is the only time in the creation story where we hear these words. Not good. Not good. Uh, This is what happens as soon as God makes Adam, the very first man. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Not it is good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, what's striking about this comment is that the fall of humanity hasn't happened yet. That happens in Genesis 3. We're in Genesis 2 here. So Adam and Eve, they haven't eaten from the forbidden tree. They haven't rebelled against God's love. Sin hasn't come into the picture. And so Adam has this perfect relationship with God, unblemished, unbroken. He can literally walk with God, talk with God, hold God's hand if he wanted to. And yet even so, something is amiss. Something isn't right. It is not good for the man to be alone. Um, John Ortberg is one of my favorite writers and preachers, and he put together this book called, uh, it's got a great title, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. This is what he says about this part of the creation story. Uh, This is an excerpt from his book. Sometimes when people feel lonely, we tell them not to expect too much from human relationships, that there is inside every human being a God-shaped void, that no other person can fill. That is true, Orberg says. But apparently, according to the writer of Genesis, God creates inside this man a kind of human-shaped void that God himself will not fill. Who does Adam stand in for? Who does Adam represent? The Hebrew word Adam, Adam, means mankind, humankind, humanity. Adam represents you, Adam represents me, Adam represents all of us as human beings, that there is a void within us, this deep and abiding void that God himself will not fill. Only other people can fill it. We have been made for community. A human being without community is like a fish without water, a bird without wings. Um, Some years ago, there was a study that was conducted by Robert Putnam. Uh, maybe some of you recognize that name. Um, Robert Putnam is a social scientist. He teaches at Harvard University in Massachusetts. Well, Putnam and his team did some research about human beings, and they discovered something pretty interesting. They discovered that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. The most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. Not only that, but the team also discovered that those with bad health habits, such as smoking, alcohol usage, poor eating, but strong social ties live significantly longer, not just a little bit longer, but significantly longer than those with um, uh, uh, strong ties, I'm sorry, than people with great habits, but were isolated. And so here's what that basically means. It is better to eat chocolate donuts with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. Amen? So there we have it, straight from the preacher's mouth this morning. Putnam and his team went on to conclude 
that if we don't belong to any social groups, we belong to no social groups, and then we join just one group, we cut our risk of dying in the next year in half. And that research should not surprise us. It shouldn't shock us. It goes right along with how we were made. God made us for community. Community is a part of our DNA. It's part of our genetic makeup. And yet the problem is, folks, we are becoming increasingly isolated, aren't we? A lot of us felt this last year during COVID, didn't we? When the quarantine period started, just how isolated we become, and then that just exacerbated everything. Mother Teresa once made the observation, she said, loneliness is the leprosy of modern society. It's the leprosy of modern society. It's the disease that we won't talk about, but that plagues and affects us. And the only antidote for this loneliness, the only cure for this loneliness is community. Not Facebook friends, not a lot of social media followers on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or whatever popular form of social media there is today, but genuine and authentic connections with other people. And of course, it should be said that there is value in all human relationships. However, there's a certain kind of value. There's a special kind of value in the relationships that we only find in the church because only the people of the church have a vested interest in our spiritual well-being and growth. We need the people of the church. We need the people of the church to encourage us, to pray for us, to give us a comforting word. We also need the people of the church to push back at us, to challenge us, to give us that kick in the pants every once in a while that we need. We need the people of the church to show us and model to us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's been said that it takes a village to raise a child, but I would submit that it takes a church to raise a disciple. And I can think of so many times in my own life where God has used the people of the church to help me in my walk with Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'll admit, doesn't mean it's always pretty. Doesn't mean it's always beautiful because the people of the church are imperfect, aren't they? And so they frustrate us, amen? They get under our skin they disappoint us. They let us down. Um, John Ortberg, the writer I mentioned earlier, in that same book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, he says that every single one of us as human beings should carry an as-is label. So when you come into worship, you should have your name tag on, but you should also have a label that says as-is. Yeah. You know, sometimes you go to the mall, the department store, and there's a clearance rack, a bunch of discounted clothes, and then you come across a shirt, and you like the shirt, but then it has that as-is label. And what that label basically means is there's some sort of flaw with the shirt, some sort of deficiency. Maybe there's a hole in it. Maybe there's a mustard stain. Maybe the last person who tried it on had really bad body odorant. Uh, the store's not going to tell you what the issue is. I'm sorry. The store's not going to tell you what the issue is. And then once you buy the shirt, you can't take that shirt back to the store. You have to take the shirt as-is exactly as it comes. Well, every single one of us as people, including those of us in the church, should have an as-is label because we have flaws, don't we? Get to know me long enough and you'll experience my gifts, but you'll also experience my flaws, amen? I'm glad you didn't say amen like super loud this morning. <laughs> but in truth, a lot of you have already come to experience my flaws in the last 10 months since I've been the pastor here. 
As human beings, we're fundamentally broken, and oftentimes this brokenness shows up in the church as we're relating to each other, interacting with each other. But at its best, the church offers us the community that we crave and the depth of who we are, the community that God wants to use to fill us and change us. And so that's the first problem with this notion, I don't need the church. It hurts us because it goes against our nature as human beings and robs us of the relationships that God wants to use to fill us and change us. The second problem with this kind of thinking, I don't need the church, is that it hurts the church. Because God wants to use all of us, not some of us, not most of us, God wants to use all of us to help the church fulfill its mission of making disciples of Jesus for the transformation of the world. Uh, I mentioned in our last sermon series that the New Testament uses a number of different metaphors for the church. For example, in Ephesians, Paul calls the church the bride of Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul calls the church the temple of God. Uh, in other places, Paul calls the church um, the family of God when he refers to people as brothers and sisters. However, the predominant metaphor, the main metaphor for the church in the New Testament, what is it? It's the body of Christ the body of Christ. Again and again, we are told that the church is Jesus's body in this world. Listen with me to what Paul says here. This is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. All of you together, somebody say together. Yeah. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Notice, Paul doesn't say all of you individually are Christ's body. He doesn't say all of you in your own silos are Christ's body. All of you in isolation are Christ's body. Instead, he says, all of you together. If Paul had been Southern, he would have said, all y'all are Christ's body together. And the idea here is that collectively, we are Jesus in this world. That just as no body is complete without all the parts, without the knees and the ears and the nose and the eyes, just as no body is complete without all the parts, the church is not complete without you and without me. And so when we take on this notion, I don't need the church, the church is optional. The church is take it or leave it. We hurt ourselves, right? But we not only hurt ourselves, we hurt the church. Because folks, we're robbing the church of our gifts. The gifts that God gave us, the, the gifts that God built into us, the gifts that God wants to specifically use in conjunction with the gifts of other people so the whole body might be built up and the work of Jesus might go forward in this world. God wants all of us to play a role in the work of Christ. Now listen, does that mean that the church won't survive without us? Does that mean that the church won't survive without Chris Jones or Suzanne Wade? Of course not. The church will survive without us. Jesus himself said in Matthew's gospel that the gates of hell would not stop the church. But the church will not be as God intends for it to be without you and without me. Because God's intent is for all of us, each and every one of us, to play a role in the work of Jesus Christ. Even those of us who might feel as if we don't have much to contribute, we do. God wants to use us. He does. Um, earlier this summer, we celebrated the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. In fact, some of you were alive when Apollo 11 went to the moon. And it got me thinking about this uh, book that came out um, back in 2006 
The book is entitled Team Moon, How 400,000 People, we got a graphic for it up here on the screen, Team Moon, How 400,000 People Landed Apollo 11 on the Moon. You know, so often we think of Apollo 11 as the accomplishment of a few astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, people like that. But in reality, it took almost half a million people to get human beings to the moon. There were radio telescope operators, I got to make sure I'm reading this, radio telescope operators, computer whizzes, parachute designers, engineers, mechanics, mathematicians, soldiers, contractors, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, and a whole bunch of others. Amen? For example, do you know that it took 500 people to develop a spacesuit? 500 people to make a spacesuit. Uh, in the book, um, one seamstress made this comment. She said, we didn't worry too much until the guys on the moon started jumping up and down. And that gave us a little bit of an eyebrow twitch. And so it's no wonder that when Neil Armstrong took that historic step, what did he say? Those famous words? That's one small step for man, one giant leap for who? For mankind, humankind. Because it took pretty much all of humankind to enable Neil Armstrong to take that step. And just as Apollo 11 wasn't a solo effort, neither is the work of the church. God wants to use all of us, each and every one of us, to help the church fulfill its mission of making disciples of Jesus for the transformation of this world. So going back to the question, do we need the church? Absolutely. Definitely. We need the church because God made us for community. It's part of our DNA. And God wants to use the people of the church as flawed and imperfect as they are to fill that void that we have deep within us. And God wants to use the people of the church to change and transform us, help us on our journey of becoming more like Jesus. And we need the church number two because God is bidding us. God is inviting us. God is welcoming us to be a part of this body of believers, to use the gifts that he has given us in conjunction with the gifts of others so the whole body might be built up, the reach of Jesus might go forward, and more and more people might come to understand the profundity, the depth of God's rich and abiding love. Thanks be to God for the church. There really is nothing else like him, and there never will be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the church. It's imperfect. It's flawed. It makes mistakes. Because it's filled with broken and sinful people like ourselves. But God, I'm reminded of what one early Christians said that we can't have you as our father without the church as our mother. Because the reality is, God, that you have given birth to the church. And you have given the church a mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that all of us would come to embrace the church, that in the relationships we find here, that we, we find that void for community filled, that you would continue to use the people of the church to push us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to teach us what it means to be a follower of you. 
And God, please help all of us to use our gifts, whatever those gifts might be that you have blessed us with, in conjunction with other people's gifts, so that more and more people might come to understand just how much you love this world, how in Jesus Christ you have come to reconcile all things to yourself. And God, we praise you this morning in particular for Asbury United Methodist Church, this local body of believers, which is a part of the church universal. God, continue to use the people of Asbury in ways that you deem fit so that more and more people might be led into life with you. We pray all these things in the strong, the precious, the holy name of Jesus Christ.